It's been said you can have all the riches in the world, but if you don't have your health, you don't have much. According to nationwide data, obesity-related health issues such as diabetes, heart disease, and cancer are the second leading cause of preventable death. At 45, with three generations of type 2 diabetics in my family, I'm especially worried about this for myself. 50 years ago, the rate of obesity among Americans was 13% for adults and 7% for children. By 2020, the rate of obesity had risen to 42% for adults and 20% for children. And that was before COVID lockdowns shut down parks and gyms. I know my fitness has declined big time over the past three years, and the impacts extend to our mental health as well. A recent Harvard study found that running just 15 minutes a day can reduce the risk of major depression by 26%. Given the adverse health issues associated with obesity, what can we do as dads to keep our kids healthy? And how can we improve our own health so that we have as much time with them and our future grandchildren as possible? Well, today's guest, Chris Powell, was host of the popular TV show Extreme Weight Loss on ABC, where he helped numerous people overcome obesity. Today, he's the founder of Move One Million, a daily broadcast that connects the world through movement and co-hosts the I Needed That podcast. Chris has dedicated two decades to helping severely obese people achieve their weight loss goals and found his life's purpose in the process. He's also struggled with his own mental health and had lots of helpful insights into that struggle as well. It got so clouded so fast when I was stuck in my own world and my own misery and just my own darkness. You know, how could I have possibly fallen into this rut of, oh my God, I'm a drug addict. I'm an opioid addict. How did that happen? And pulling myself out of the darkness I found my happiness and service. I have knowledge and a passion for exercise and for movement and also for mindfulness now because I've gone through this incredible mental journey and I realize yeah. it's all intertwined. So what could I do for everyone who's suffering right now? Chris is a great example of how helping others overcome their own personal challenges can bring deep meaning and fulfillment to our own lives and maybe even lengthen them in the process. All right, Chris, welcome to Dad Saves America. Thank you, it's good um, to be here. I'm really excited about this because this is our last shoot of the year and that means we're coming up on New Year's resolutions. <laughs> my, my busiest time of year, yeah. for sure, yes. So you are the guy for this. <laughs> so I guess my first question is, we were talking about this before we started. I just turned 45, you're coming up on it. You're in amazing shape and I am a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on, so, this is job security for me. So <laughs> you get a get out of jail free card there. So, but no, seriously though, like we were saying kind of before we got started, I'm 45. I'm, you know, just shy. I'm actually coming down. I was 203. I'm now like 190. Okay, good. So, but I should be like 175. I'm especially concerned about this because I have a long history of diabetes in my family. Mm. And so this is like this moment for me where I'm like, okay, my dad got diabetes when he was 44. Right. And I'm 45 now. I don't have it yet. My sugars are fine, but I'm really concerned about it. And it's really hard. <laughs> I get it. And I'm 100% it. Italian and food is like a religion <laughs> and you know, every kind of thing that's tasty is a treat yes, for me. Yes. So like, help me. <laughs> uh, okay, well, first of all, the scales go in the right direction. So I wanna give you kudos for that. That's amazing. And so if you can keep that trend going, obviously it's only gonna be beneficial for, for your journey, for where, where you wanna go. And then on top of that, you know, here's the thing. My approach and what a lot of people have seen me, you know, do before in the past, you know, it used to be very, very strict. And if I could go back and I'd do it all over again, I would be so much more lenient. Because the thing is, you know, strict can work for a very short period of time. 
but at the same time we need to be we need to honor and respect culture and traditions and like ultimately you know food it does need to be enjoyable you know this yeah, as well yeah. as i do and so the thing is like you start depriving and restricting you know people from from the foods that really make them feel good okay then down the road if, if we don't have other mechanisms in place that can be a big problem here's what i would do as far as you go i don't want to take anything away this might sound a little bit different, but, and it's the whole concept of adding and not removing. So I'm not going to come in here and say, and take away your desserts or anything like that. I would definitely want to start exploring what we could add to your meals that are going to, number one, be high in fiber, higher in protein, higher in water as well. So like things that are going to keep you fuller longer yeah. that would then prevent you from overeating subconsciously later on in the day. So like there, there's, there's all kinds of different things. And it certainly require you and I sit, sitting down and saying, okay, I want you to just share with me everything that you love to eat during the day. I would go through the entire week because we all, we love variety, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, and I'm sure, especially being full, full-blooded Italian, <laughs> I'm sure all the different pastas and the desserts and everything yeah. like that. Getting rid of dairy. I, I find, <laughs> I, you know, we've, we made this film about the way animals are raised for food and my wife is mostly vegan and I, I've been occasionally vegan, but man, cheese. <laughs> <laughs> So here's the thing, you don't, uh, well, especially for diabetes, you don't necessarily have to give up cheese because it's, it's the sugars that you really want to, that you want to watch for. So let's, let's tackle dairy. Let's push it down the road. Why <laughs> give it up now? You know, well, what if we made some other changes and you saw your biomarkers improve significantly? without removing dairy. Would that sound good to you? <laughs> I, 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 I feel like this is a commercial or something. But <laughs> I'd be willing to buy that. Sign well, me for up. For sure, for sure. So that, that's the thing. There's all kinds of different solutions we can do, but they'll, they'll be so beautifully unique to you and your lifestyle. And that's why the thing is like, when I'm gonna work with somebody, I wanna come in and I, I want them to literally just paint their entire lifestyle for me. You're the artist. And I'm gonna have you literally display everything for me. And we'll just go through and make tiny little changes because if I came through, and change it all in one fell swoop, which I've done a lot that a lot before in the past, I might be able to get you very fast results in a very short amount of time. But I would lose and you would lose in the long game. And that's what this is really all about. It's not just getting you, you know, incredible biomarkers into 165 pounds in a six pack, you know, by March, right? No, it's yeah. I want to set you up for life. And so and in order to do that, it's so important to make one small change at a time. And I can't stress that enough. And that's, that's, this is where my approach, I'm a perpetual student. You know, I, I've done a lot in the past and there's a lot I would change. And the more I learn about human behavior and the psychology and the, the emotional and the psychological aspect of it, it all boils down to making small, tiny, sustainable changes and then stacking those in order to, to really create a sustainable lifestyle for someone. So I wanna take a step back to that learning process. Yes. So take me to where you first found this passion for fitness. You know, this is your life, is, is fitness and in well-being and health. So wh where did this start for you? So what well, started, I'll give you a little, a little backstory but behind it. I was the smallest kid in, in school growing up. From about fourth grade to seventh grade, that's when the bullying started. You know, I was an easy target because I was such a tiny little kid. And I'm where is this? I grew up in Salinas, California. So born in Arizona, I jumped around a lot. Arizona, Washington, Idaho, went to California. I really spent a lot of my elementary school years and early high school years in, in California, then moved back to the Pacific Northwest. So fourth to seventh grade, Salinas, California. Beautiful part of the, the country. Yeah. Like, it's absolutely gorgeous. You know, nevertheless, School is school, and when you're, <laughs> when you're the smallest kid in school, yeah. you're an easy target. And so that's when it started. And so it was fourth to seventh grade were really, really rough on me. Well, and, and middle school, 
My, my son calls middle school the Hunger Games. <laughs> so, and I it's, think that's right. I think it's pretty If you can survive it, you yes. might be okay. Yes, no kidding. But, but surviving it is not oh, guaranteed. It was brutal. It was a time in my life that really started to shape some of my own beliefs about myself because it was during that time I certainly felt powerless. I felt like so much was taken away from me. You know, when, when you're growing up, you know, you, you might think a certain way about yourself and all of a sudden the bullying starts and you don't know how to handle a situation. And these bullies, a lot of them are, they're significantly larger than me and I just felt powerless. Were I, you overweight? Did you struggle with weight when you were, when you were a kid? No, okay. I, I, I was just tiny. I was really, really tiny. In fact, <laughs> the if, diary of a wimpy kid yes, about you. Yes, That's what very, really very close. <laughs> and then we ended up moving from Salinas to the Pacific Northwest and I tried out for and this is my first time I was a sophomore at this point, and I was still really small at the time. I thought, okay, new school, reinvent myself. I'm gonna go out for the football team, and oh. I'm gonna get out there, and I'm gonna show them how tough I am. Smallest kid on the, on the field. And let me tell you, I, I, was in, I was in training camp for a week, and they made it really clear that I was not gonna be a part of that team. They would push me out of the, out of the huddles. They wouldn't <laughs> let me drink water at the fountains. Like, it was just, it was a really difficult, situation for me and I was the new kid. My parents saw, I mean, we had been living in the Pacific Northwest for a couple weeks at this time. Yeah. And school's just starting and uh, they just saw my spirit break even more. Oh. 14 years old, I came home, as I ended up quitting football. And it was one of the few things that I quit and it haunted me to this day. Um, <laughs> You're gonna be all right. The, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. The, deep down inside. Trust me, those high school football players are <laughs> very jealous of you. Yes. <laughs> you know, it, it, it all turned out. It all worked out. Because it steered me toward my passion. What happened is I came home from school. My parents saw how, how it hurt me. Just again, it was my stature, feeling broken. And I came home from school one day and they had cleared out the living room furniture and there was a weight set in the middle of the living room so, floor. So paint the picture for me, I love, cause like, so what was your house like? Did you walk right into the living room? Like what was this experience of coming in and was it a surprise? Yeah, so basically like right through the front door, living room was right there on the left hand side and you kind of walk through into the kitchen. So I walked to the door and I looked to the left and everything's cleared out. And there is a the beautiful, one of those like universal style weight sets there with the bench press, the butt of a chest, the, the pec deck. It's got a lap pull machine. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they had, the, yeah, they had the, the bicep curl, the preacher curl there on. I mean, it was the whole thing in one. And it was sitting right there in the middle of the living room. The only other piece of furniture they actually kept in the living room was the uh, entertainment center and the TV. Thank goodness. <laughs> it is America. Yes, yes. <laughs> So, so these were all, all the pieces for your future were in place. You got the weight set, the television there. Yep, in full disclosure, for the first couple of weeks, I didn't really know what to do, like exactly like how to mess around with this thing. So I would sit on the bench and watch TV. And I would just I would sit there because the couch was gone. So I'd sit there, you know, and just start flipping through channels. And then eventually I'm like, ah, you know, I'm just gonna lay under this thing and, huh, okay, so I can do the bar, throw some fives on there. Let's, Okay, I could do it. That's kind of cool. Ooh, that burns. You know, yeah. racked it. And it became a thing every single day. I would come home from school, put a little bit more on the bench press, and I felt myself getting stronger. And sure enough, I was, what was difficult wasn't difficult anymore. And I could rep out a few more. Let's get into some pec deck and maybe do some preacher curls. And I started playing around with it. Did you get any magazines or anything to like oh, help yeah. you? Did you go, oh. you went down the rabbit hole? Not yet. Okay. I was just playing around with it. This is, this is me just, just discovering it at, for myself. Just 
And my parents just kind of let me do what I needed to do. And they, they let me just find it as I was ready. And then sure enough, about three months in, I'm in the bathroom, closed the mirror, you know, they got the, the, the cabinet open. I'm looking for something. I close it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> hold on, <laughs> mom, mom, come here. <laughs> then here come the magazines. I mean, oh. it was Flex Magazine, Muscle Fitness. I'm like, yes, whoa, this is it. And it was like, I felt, I just, even now, chills. I just, it gave me my power back. And I felt, even though I was still small in stature, I felt strong again for the first time since fourth grade. And I was like, this is the answer. Like, I might not be the biggest kid out there, but I can be the strongest, and I can be the fastest. I can be. Are the, you fast? I got pretty darn fast. I'm, <laughs> I'm almost 45, also. So, right, right. Yeah. I mean, no. I could take, Were you fast? I could take off correct, fast, and I'd probably question. pull a hammy right now. <laughs> and so I was fast. And and that before you know it, I'm just knee deep in every muscle and fitness flex magazine you could possibly imagine. I was absorbing as much as I possibly could, and it was feeling so good. And I was I was applying the the routines, yeah. you know, and all the different programming. And it was like that. I was obsessed. And then actually to the point where I only worked out at my house. I mean, I, I still worked out every you know whenever I could. But then I was so confident after a few months of doing that, I started working out in the the school gym. And so, like, I would go to the like to the school gym after now, school. Now you were confident because you felt like you weren't going to get judged by the other guy. Like, what was the what was the reason that that was a confidence move? When I looked in the mirror, I saw muscle. And so <laughs> the thing is, I don't know what anyone else saw, but I saw the difference. And yeah. so I walked into the gym. I was like, "Hey, ladies, you know what's going on, guys?" <laughs> and but the thing is, I remembered all the things that I would read before I knew it. I was in the gym and. I was giving other people advice on how to do their bicep curls. And, oh, you want to take that to failure. You know, like aim for 10 to 15 reps on that set. Hold on, I'll be right over there with you. Okay, good, that, okay. that's looking really good. Hey, you bring your elbows in just a little bit. Drop those, those, brought those shoulders back. And I'm just like, before I knew it, like- You were training. I'm not kidding. I, this is like, I should have been paying attention then because like it was ingrained in me. I just, it made me feel so good. It gave me my power. I was so excited to share this with other people. And if I, if I knew better, I would have said, okay, this is my path in life. I was forcing a, a slightly different path at the time, but nevertheless, like it was clear as day. It was right there in front of me. So you studied, I understand, ex exercise science. Exercise science, yes. So what is that? So <laughs> now I saw this and I'm like, Exercise science? Yeah, it was like jumping jacks. Physiology? Or, what is it, this? It is. So the concentrations are physiology and biomechanics. That was what I studied in school. And nowadays they call it kinesiology. Much okay. fancier name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So, Got to get the Latin, uh, the Latin roots in there and all that. Yes. Yeah. And it actually was considered a pre-med degree. Which is which is awesome. So it satisfied all the requirements to go pre med. Oh, interesting. Um, so because it was heavily science based, my love was biomechanics and physiology, just the mechanisms for how it works, how our body works in motion. And it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the most incredible gift we've ever been given. And if we just learn to appreciate it for what it is and how it works, we can change it and it could, because it's made to change. Is there a thing about the way the body works that you think is most misunderstood that you learned both from your study and from your, your sense of doing this work and being a trainer and helping people? Yes. I did not learn this lesson until probably over the last 15 years. What I didn't understand, and what I'm constantly just seeking to learn more and more and more about, was that is the human behavior side of it, the psychology and the emotional aspect hmm. yeah. of transformation. Because, I mean, I spent 
20 years writing programs for people, exercise programs, nutrition programs, they don't do any good <laughs> unless you can get through this part first. And we're still trying to crack that code. And, and I'm, I mean, I could just take a number because I'm one of you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of other professionals out there who are trying to figure this out too. But when you throw in just the human element of it and the human behavior and the psychology and the emotions behind it, that dictates everything. And, it's, and it makes everything that much more complex. I have found myself drawn towards psychology in the past several years in a way that I never was before. And we had Dr. Drew on talking about things like therapy and, and I've never had therapy. So this is like a, a whole new world for me to think about psychology you know, in a more formal way. You come out of school, what's your first job in this space? What happens next? So my first job in this was actually as a flight instructor. <laughs> so <laughs> as I mentioned before, like early in the story, I was forcing a different path. My, my father's a pilot. He's a great guy. He was my hero. Uh, he was a fighter pilot in the Navy, actually. And so oh, that's he pretty went, awesome. It was super it was Top cool, Gun. Man. Top Gun dad. He was the head of an aggressor squadron at Top Gun in Miramar. So <laughs> he, he was flew, literally yes. Top Gun dad. So you remember Viper? <laughs> and he flew those A the camouflage A4s? Yeah. My dad flew the camouflage A4s against the F-14 guys. And so he was just a bad dude and his call sign like everyone's got a funny call sign yeah his was gunny and gunny that's what they used to call the marine drill sergeants because he was just so rigid it was just it's gotta be done like he's just a hardcore dude nicest guy ever but like when when he's on and when he's doing what he needs to do yeah. he's as serious as it gets and he was a he's a phenomenal pilot so a badass dude i mean just like hardcore hero Right? Is your so, dad still alive? He is. Yeah, yes. That's great. Oh, I was just with him a, a few weeks ago. He lives up in Gig Harbor, Washington now. Just, just a great dude. So he went uh, from the military into the airlines. He actually ended up retiring as the most senior captain at Delta Airlines. And now he's actually one of the head flight instructors for Alaska Airlines. 74 years old, still going strong. <laughs> Sorry for the little tangent there. No, that's well, hey, it's Dad Saves America, so <laughs> Top Gun Dad takes the cake, oh, I think. Yeah, he's... Dad oh. literally saves America. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> right? But he was my idol. So I always thought, I was like, I'm going to be like my dad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly. So when I turned 17, that's when I got my private pilot's license, because that's the age at which you can. And actually, when I was in college, I was getting my other ratings, my instrument rating, commercial rating, my multi-engine rating, my flight instructor rating. And so when I... So you were doing this alongside of the, uh, the exercise science? I was. Okay. Because I didn't, I didn't see a future in exercise science. So then why, like, were you just taking it out of passion then? Yeah. Okay. I went to college initially, and I was in engineering. Because I was like, well, I'm going to follow. I'm going to. I'm going to be a pilot. Might as well understand the engineering side of things. I. I couldn't pass math. I couldn't get past statics, dynamics, calc three. I mean, or calculus, integrated physics. I mean, it was. It was ridiculous. The airlines they require a four year degree. I'm going to do something I absolutely love. Switch to exercise science, physiology, biomechanics, and I just rocked it. It was okay. fun. So it's like I can graduate oh. with this and not yeah. hate myself and maybe not oh. have it happen. Yes, yes. And I was blessed with some of these the most incredible professors, you know, Dr. Pagliasani and Dr. Wade Willis. And it's like, man, they just instilled even more passion in me on like how the body works. And so I was just like, I got to soak it up and I, I rocked it. It was great, got my degree. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna go continue flight instructing, build my hours. I actually, I mean, I've got 1,280 hours flight time, which is more than enough to get hired now. I had a resume that looked amazing. I actually had an airline. You probably do pretty well right now because the airlines are really <laughs> hurting. Know, right, seriously. I mean, now's a good time. Yeah. But my, my career wouldn't be so long. I'd have a 20 year career and I'd be out. So mandatory retirement at 65. So I actually, I had an airline interview. I had friends, there was at Mesa Airlines. Back in the day, it was called Mesa Airlines. So set the stage, What when is this? September 13th of 2001. So, so two days after 9-11. 
You're so, getting, you're interviewing to fly airplanes. I was supposed to interview to fly airplanes. Wow. Ne- needless okay. to say. All right. So <laughs> September 11th changed the course of my life. Here's the, the funny thing. I've talked about this a little bit before, but I never loved flying airplanes. I never loved it. I never trusted myself fully. I had some awful experiences. In fact, we're in Texas right now. I lost an engine over Loveland, Texas, way out West Texas in the middle of a bunch of oil fields. I ended up landing on an oil field. I just, I've had so many terrifying experiences at the controls of an airplane. I didn't trust myself. I didn't like it anymore. I can't tell you how many times I would land, I would sign my student's logbook, pass it off to them, wait for them to walk out the gate and go like, I made it again. I made it through another one. Oh my gosh, I don't know how much more I can do. It was not the path I was supposed to go down. And the whole time I'm like, how does my dad do it? My dad just, he wakes up and he lives and breathes this stuff. Like he can't talk about flying without lighting up. And I'm like, I just, it's a, I don't want to go to the airport. All I want to do is I want to go to the gym and I want to teach people how to train. And I was like, but what am I going to do? Be a personal trainer for the rest of my life. It's like, it sounds amazing, but I don't know how I could raise a family. I think and the I was, retirement age might be earlier than 65 on that job <laughs> yeah. too, right? For, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And it wasn't about doing what I loved. It was about how can I raise a family on this? And I didn't know how I could possibly raise a family as a personal trainer. And it was like, it was just, you know, it's, it's a difficult, it's a competitive space. And so, you know, September 11th happened. I woke up that morning and I was just like, oh my gosh. I mean, first of all, how horrific. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm watching it all go down and then it dawned on me, I went, oh my gosh. Like my suit is being tailored for my airline interview. I've spent six years building my hours. I, the, the airlines are gonna, they're gonna fire and furlough for the next two and a half, three years. I gotta figure something out. September 12th, I called the local gym. I walked down there and said, I have a degree in exercise science, physiology, biomechanics. I want a job. They hired me there on the spot and Within a month, I had a waiting list of people waiting to train with me because I was just, I was the trainer in the gym who was so excited. I would literally, I would would give, like every session was an experience and it was lessons. And before I knew it, people were like floating around listening to as I was, as I was training with my client. And before I knew it, it it's like, I had a waiting list and I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. And I was loving every minute of it. And it was fun. And it just took off from there. So sorry for the little tangent there, but no, I mean, life has taken me in all kinds of crazy twists and turns. I mean, one of the things I I love about what we do with the show is exploring people's path, right? Because I think as dads, when we think about our kids and the path they're gonna take, we do this thing, which is weird, right? Which is we personally took a crazy path Mm -hmm. and yet we want our kids to have like a linear path to, to like, have a sense of where they're gonna succeed. And yet we know that that's not how it worked for us. No. So I like, I love sharing these stories because it's so important for people to see like, oh, here's a successful person and they had no idea. They didn't even wanna do the thing that they set out to do. Right. You have a transformative experience with somebody that reaches out to you named David, right? Yes. So, but how does that happen? Now you're in it, you're starting to do training. Correct. How do you get to a place where somebody would reach out for help? I got really popular as a trainer. And then in the training world, when you're working in a large gym and you build a large clientele, the first thing you do is you take your clientele somewhere else (laughs) (laughs) because you realize they're paying the gym. And it's so funny because on the flip side of the coin, you know, I ended up growing to a certain point where I bring on trainers. Sure enough, when they all build their clientele, they're gone. It's just, it's the nature of the beast here. So I built a large clientele. 
I ended up moving to a separate gym, partnered with another trainer that, that also had a large clientele as well. And so we ended up buying out the training rights of a world gym and we're just smashing it. And then- So um, now you're an owner of the, one of the owners of the gym? Correct, okay. yes, yes. Yeah, so, and, um, entrepreneur. Funny. Yeah, in fact, my, my business partner, um, just the greatest dude, we ended up taking two completely different paths. He ended up going into the Navy SEALs and he's actually, he's one of the uh, senior officers of SEAL Team 8 right now. So he's more comfortable with the planes. Right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He jumps out of planes. I, I used to fly him, so. <laughs> well, actually, that would be a good combo. You can be worried you're going to crash, and he's prepared right, right. If, if, if it looks like that's going to happen. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. All right. So I, I, I ended up landing this gig, and, you know, so we're, we're both owning, you know, the, the training rights of a world gym in Tempe, Arizona. A friend of mine has worked for Hugo Boss, and he's like, hey, we're going to do a segment on the news. Why don't you come in? I just want to, I'm going to throw you in some really nice Hugo Boss stuff and just model it for me. Hmm. So as, as, as I got in through those doors, I just thought, what a great opportunity. I would love to be able to share my passion for fitness. So I asked for a producer. Just when I was in there, I'm supposed to be modeling clothes. Oh, and they're this? like, who's okay. this guy asking for a producer? They pointed me to a, a woman at a desk. I walked over there, I said, you don't know me, but my name's Chris Powell. I have a degree in exercise science. I'm passionate about fitness. Here's some ideas I was thinking about for fitness segments. And she's like, well, no one just comes up and asks me to be on TV, but all right. Come back in two weeks. Let's give it a shot. So the thing is, if you don't ask. Great lesson. If I walk out of here without asking, I'm going to walk, you know, like, what's the worst that could happen? Worst that could happen, I walk out of here just the same way I walked in. Best that could happen, I could walk out of here and actually have a gig on a, on a morning, fit, you know, on the morning news. Sure enough, I landed a gig as the Good Morning Arizona fitness guy, and I had that for eight years. But And were you thinking, like, this is, uh, I mean, were you thinking, like, this is, like, advertising. This is exposure oh, for the business. This is great. I absolutely. Mean, and, and exposure yeah. exposure to a lot of people that I could share my passion about fitness with. So for me, it was just always about how can I help people? How can I share with them? How can I help them take the first few steps? But I also didn't understand how the TV worked and the audience worked, and I wasn't exactly sure who I was talking to. So I was talking about glycogen depletion and super compensation and, you know, build, you know bigger bench press and a faster 40. And then the producer pulled me aside one day. She's like, look, people really like watching you because you're super excited, but no one knows what you're talking about. <laughs> and she's like, why don't you just bring it down to like the best top three button thigh exercises? And you like, here's four things you can do to lose weight in, you know, in 2003, <laughs> right? And I was like, got it. So I changed my, my segments. And before, as I changed my segments, letters started pouring in. Letters started pouring in, and what was really surprising about the letters was that it was the individuals that were 400 pounds, 500 pounds, 600 pounds within the state wow. of Arizona. And but this is back in 2002, 2003, and so there was only like one or two documentaries that you could even see on TV for individuals that you saw that were five or 600 pounds, and right. they were writing in. I mean, they would literally. This is write, early days. There wasn't the reality yeah. TV that you're obviously like a, been a part of. Right. That, that sort of brought this to light in a different way. And I realized there's a lot of people out there suffering and they just don't know how to get out of it. They've got a huge mountain to climb and they just, a lot of them feel like they've just given up. They pride themselves on being invisible. And I, I was thinking about it and my heart just hurt as I was reading like these letters. And one in particular was from a gentleman named David who was 630 pounds at the time. I was 24, he was 25. And 630 he, pounds at, at 25, 25 years old. Years old. And the doctor had just left his house and said, you're not going to see 30. You will absolutely die before then. And he just wrote me this long letter saying, I, I feel like I'm made for more. I feel like my life, you know, it can't be in vain. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to do all these things. And it just like my heart just hurt for him. I couldn't stop thinking about it. But my producer even told me, she said, you can't 
answer all these letters. He can't save everyone. But, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about David. And it was just what he wrote really resonated with me. So I drove to his house one day and I was like, Did he I, send his, how did you know he, where he, he lived? He did have, yeah. I wrote back to him and I said, I just want to meet with you. That's it. I, okay. No promises. I, I just want to meet with you. And he hadn't left his house in two years. So I knew he was going to be there. So I was like, Hey, look, I, I'm just, I'll see you on uh, Tuesday. Right. And so I showed up and we hit it off. I mean, we're sitting there 10 minutes, 10 minutes in, we are laughing. We're talking about South Park. We're telling <laughs> jokes. We're just having the greatest time. And I'm like, look, dude, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'll see you Thursday. And I showed up every other day for two years and he ended up losing 400 pounds, became one of my best friends in the process. And that, that's where I realized like my passion is helping people through the massive journey of transformation. But even then, it was, I was still so science-based. It was like, this is how we're gonna do it. We're gonna structure the program this way and we're gonna you know, take you through a progressive overload. And it was all that. I didn't realize that emotionally and psychologically, he needed a friend. He needed that. The accountability was, of course, extremely helpful, but it was just, there was so much that was happening on the emotional and psychological realm that needed to be fulfilled in order for him to actually take these steps. That's in hindsight, you know, but, but, but as we were going through it, it was just an, it was an amazing ride as he's losing all this weight and we're just hanging out as buddies every other day for two years. So we ended up losing 400 pounds. Where do you, where did you start? How did you even know where to start there? Cause that's a, such an extreme situation relative to like probably what you were dealing with, with your, the, you're coming into the gym, you're right. not 630 pounds. Right. You, so where do you start there? I tried to take a common sense approach because he hadn't moved really moved his body for years. And so I thought, okay, why don't we teach him how to move again? And I'd want to teach him how to move through his environment. He would actually move from his couch to his room. They did have some stairs, you know, and for the longest time he was stuck in his basement. And so he, and he hadn't just, he didn't want to go up the stairs, but he made it up the stairs. And I was like, well, if he, if he can make it up the stairs once, he could do it a couple more times. So what we had, we literally had a couch, and we had some stairs. And so we started with the basics and it was literally just get up off the couch however you need to. And it was, you know, he'd kind of throw one leg, throw the other leg, kind of get a rocking motion going and then kind of reach down and start lifting himself up. And for a while I would grab his hands and I would help him up and then we'd sit him back down and we'd get him up and we'd get him back down. And my, my goal was simply applying sets and repetitions and progressive overload because that's how the human body changes, right? That's how we can develop muscular strength and endurance and everything, just to get him to move through his environment. Because if I can start to do that, okay, well then now we can transition wherever. Then before I know it, I had, he was going down the stairs and he would actually use, he had such a, a huge abdomen, he would push it up against the wall to break him as he was going down. There was actually, there's a massive like streak along the wall that was like gray because he would push it up against the wall, but that's okay because it's what we, that, it's what we did to get him to move again. Yeah. And he would use that as a break as he was going down and then he'd turn around and he had a couple rails and he would pull on the rails and he'd get up the stairs. Well, it's, it's funny. Down. It's funny because I'm just realizing something that I haven't really thought about before, which is when you're heavy in general, but when you're that heavy, you're, you're like probably having muscle atrophy and you're also really heavy. So moving is hard. It is. <laughs> so he's got to move a 630 pound body with legs that haven't been getting exercise. They hadn't, but he was, st he still had to get up and down a couple times a day. 
And have you ever seen anyone who squats 600 pounds a couple times a day? <laughs> Guess what? There was some muscle atrophy, but you'd be blown away at how much muscle he had on him. And right. that's the, from the, the, the physiology side of me. I was just like, it's kind oh, of amazing. Let's go. I'm licking my chops because <laughs> like, the thing is, muscle is the most active living tissue on the body, right? So that's where the majority of your metabolism, your resting metabolic rate, is due to the amount of muscle mass that you've got. He was sitting on a V12 engine and he didn't even know it. His glutes, quads, and hams were freaking massive. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm looking at his legs and they were huge. And I'm like, let's go. He hasn't even revved these things up yet. I can't wait to put him in motion and to feed him properly, right? And put some fuel in there and like, get this guy going. Like, he's gonna drop like a rock and he did. This is the thing, like, I know a lot of people had known me for my work with individuals who are, might be in the super obese category, which is, yeah. you know, they might be 100 to 300 pounds overweight. But the thing is, all those individuals out there who are thinking, oh, my metabolism is shot, you're sitting on a V12 engine. Your, your legs, which is the largest muscle group of the body, again, they're massive. And so like, all we need to do is just stimulate those suckers for growth a little bit, put them in motion, and you can drop so fast. That's the beauty of it. It's like all the potential is right there. What did you do on the food front, on the diet front? There's a lot of nonsense out there about diet. So how did you approach that then? Right, I'm glad you brought that up. Because the thing is, I'm not a registered dietitian. I'm a, I'm a personal trainer. My, you know, my degree and my specialty was physiology and biomechanics. Again, it's, it was not dietetics. And here's the thing, I should have known where my scope of practice ended, and I didn't, because there was also a friendship there and everything, I went far. It was just like, we were buddies at this point. Yeah. So we went far beyond that, and I was like, hey, I ended up creating a, a plan for him, just talking him through like what it is that he really liked to eat. He loved pizza, loved ice cream. We did remove ice cream, but I was like, hey, if you can't have pizza today, what, what would you say if you could always have it tomorrow? And so uh, the, I created something, it was a carb cycling approach with him. And again, I mean, this is, it's outside of my scope of practice. I can't, I cannot prescribe meal plans. Sure. But nevertheless, anyone who comes to me, it's like, well, I don't know what's gonna work best for you. Could be high carb, could be low carb, could be keto, could be vegan. It might just be your regular diet and making a couple little tweaks to it. I don't know what's gonna work best for you. And guess what, they all work. <laughs> they all work. And so like, no, there's no one, I'm no zealot now. You know, before it's, I was just like, yeah. go carb cycling because carb cycling was big in the bodybuilding world. And so a lot of bodybuilders would carb cycle because it was- What's carb is, cycling? Carb cycling is basically, it's creating a, a pattern of high and low carb days throughout your week. So sometimes it's you go two low carb days followed by a high carb or a refeed, drop back down into low carbs. And, and as you carb cycle, you calorie cycle. So high carb days coincide with higher calorie days. Then you drop into lower carb days. So I, that's what I did with him. So we would say that do two lower carb days where he could enjoy, you know, lots of chicken and green beans and cheese and he could have bacon and higher fatty, like fattier foods, but still stay at a calorie deficit. Then we'd do like a higher carb day, like where he could have his pastas speaking to your, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he loved his refried beans and his Mexican food, so he had his beans and rice and all that stuff. Yeah. Then we would have another, a bigger refeed where he could have his pizza and everything like that. It worked for him, but I'm not saying that that approach works for everybody. But I came from, again, it was about the manipulation. It was the science of it. But you know, now you ask me like, oh, what's the best approach? Depends. You sound like know. my buddy Jeffrey Kane, who for a time was uh, the CEO of CrossFit, and and he, he's a buff guy, great guy, and he was like, every di all diets work. He said the same thing, like yeah. it's just you gotta eat in moderation. That's that's <laughs> bingo. That's it. 
Create a calorie deficit. Find something that works best for you. Like whatever it is that works best for you, that's the best diet that, that you can possibly follow. You were talking about psychology earlier and you've developed this friendship with David. Yes. How did he get to that place? How did he get to a place where he's in his basement at 630 pounds? So what was underneath the surface of that? David, he was, um, he was molested when he was younger by one of his childhood friends who was an older, who was an older kid. And it was just something that he never shared and he harbored that. And so, and that he ended up turning to food to deal with his own shame and feeling like it was his fault and, and all of that. And so that, that was the beginning of, of when, his, when did you learn that in the, in, over the course of your relationship with him? Early on. He shared that with, with me in like the first month of going through the process. And it, it, that made a lot more sense to me. I was like, okay. Cause I, and even not, not understanding fully the psychological side of transformation, I was like, okay. I did understand this, especially, you know, for so many of the individuals that really struggle with, with, you know, using food to numb those emotions. So many of them come from sexual trauma. And, and especially in the work that I've done, I, I'll tell you straight up, is with the individuals I've worked with, more than 50% have had some severe sexual trauma in their past, usually from childhood. Is there, so, I mean, obviously, that is a violation of your body. 100%. So, and so what, what have you learned about what's happening there that, that would lead people down that road. I mean, like, I was, is it, I, I can pop psychologize, but what right. the hell, I don't, I don't know anything. So I was blessed to work with some phenomenal psychologists in my day who have actually, you know, helped people through the trauma. And, and they always said that, you know, an individual's first common sense reaction is to, okay, I'm going to eat and I'm going to protect myself. Because the thing is, if I, if I make myself more unattractive, then it won't lure this individual to me, especially those like people that are going through chronic sexual abuse. And so they'll, they'll try to protect themselves. And is this something eating. that people are doing consciously or unconsciously or both, I, I guess? I, I, Who knows? That's, that's a good question. Who knows? Who knows? It could be both. And then so, but typically that's the response. And then there's a saying, you know, and I did learn this from the psycho the psychologist. They were saying like every 50 pounds is like, it's another layer of protection. And so, and, huh. but at the same time, that's as they're putting it on, but as they're, as it's coming off, something very traumatic starts to happen. I've helped a lot of people through the journey of significant weight loss. And as they begin to lose a lot of weight, a lot of these past traumas start to come off because they start to feel like they're losing the protective layers. And so it's really important to have those psychologists there to help them with deal with the things that come up that they don't even realize are buried underneath. So you've got a Top Gun dad who's kind of a drill sergeant. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of a gym rat. How did you interact with this therapy psychology stuff? Because this is soft, open-hearted stuff you've got to navigate. Yes. H how did you do it? When I started to realize the intricacies and, and how everything is, like the, the approach needed to be holistic, I've always been open to it. I'm way softer than my dad ever was. <laughs> I, I definitely, I got that from my mom's side, for sure. Um, because- Were you ever called a girly man at the gym? <laughs> not, not that I remember. 
Between fourth and seventh grade, yes, I was. But for the young, for the young, for the for the young people, that is a Schwarzenegger reference. Yes, not a, <laughs> and you have to say it in your best yes. Arnold voice, yeah. right? <laughs> a goodie man. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, you know, I, I've always I've been open to it because the thing is, you know, helping David through, but also like helping a lot of individuals and running up against walls where no matter how hard I was pushing the science of it, I could not get them to comply or to adhere. That's when I realized I was like, I'm missing pieces here. I'm missing a major component of this overall puzzle. And I'm still trying to figure it out because the thing is like everyone's puzzle, everyone's code is different. And so it's like, it, it takes a lot to learn about an individual to try to crack that code. You had your own trauma that you've, that you've been through. Tell me about that. It's been, a, it's been a wild ride. I would say probably one of the first, the first real canyons that I ended up going through in my life is actually David and his David's family who, who helped me out. But it was after he'd gone through his transformation and he and I were like best friends. I ended up uh, herniating a disc in my back and this is back in 2006. And back in those days, it's like, you know, you, you pull a muscle, you hurt your back. So and then a herniated disc is something that's it's pretty yeah. severe. The doctor's like, hey, here, take this, you know, for pain. It's called Vicodin. Okay, cool. You know, and sure enough, take a couple of Vicodin. I'm like, whoa, man, I'm feeling good. Okay, that's a, that's a lot yeah. better. At that time, I was like, I've always been a dreamer, and, and I like to create and build. And so I... In the process of you know David going through his transformation, something that kind of helped teach him the process of nutrition, I invented this nutrition system. I mean, it taught people how to eat by colors and numbers. And so I ended up going to a colleague of mine, tooled a factory in China, borrowed a couple hundred thousand dollars, and made twelve thousand of these things. And I shipped them over. Wow. Yeah, shipped them over, and I'm like, I'm gonna. I'm gonna teach the world how to eat and I'm gonna teach everyone and they're gonna have the tool that they need to finally change their life for good. And just this perpetual, I'm a dreamer, but I just didn't understand the business side of anything. And so they ended up shipping this product over and I remember opening up the box. I was in, at the docks in San Pedro. We shipped it over to a nearby warehouse and I tear open the box and I pull the first one out and it like falls apart. Oh. And immediately, I don't remember all of that moment. I do remember Somehow, like, I was on the ground with my hands on the ground, and, like, I put my head on the concrete, and I just, I remember just feeling the, so much weight and just thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I was sitting on, with a, a container full of a couple hundred thousand dollars that I had borrowed of product, and I, I had saved a hundred thousand dollars training people, so 100K of my own money, 200K of borrowed money. Wow. And I just thought, how am I going to get myself out of this? in the process, like in the midst of that, I was, I mean, it was a couple weeks later, that's when I herniated the disc in my back. And so you got this like literal, this, well, I guess a, it's not technically literal, but this giant financial weight and your hopes, and it's all wrapped up in this like vortex, like the, the abyss yes. moment. In the meantime, I'm having panic attacks. So I get a prescription for Vicodin, and I get a prescription for Xanax. And I quickly realized that that made the pain go away. By the way, opioids and benzos, not a good combo. Vicodin quickly turned into Percocet. By the way, the doctor wasn't prescribing those anymore. You ask around, you can, back in those days, you could find anything that you wanted really, really quickly. And that turned into Oxycontin. And before I knew it, I was two years severely 
addicted to painkillers, to opioids. And I ended up, I mean, money was gone. Everything that I had saved up, I spent two years running from the people that I had borrowed the money from. I was running and running and running. And in the meantime, though, you know, painkillers, not only do they kill the physical pain, but they also kill the emotional pain. And so it became my escape. So from 2006 to 2008, I was gone. I don't, I don't remember much of that window of time. I really don't. It's, it's interesting even trying to go back and remember and tell, tell the story of it. I'm like, I, it's, it's, a all, it's a big blur. I ended up moving in with a really a good friend of mine, but unfortunately this good friend of mine was also severely addicted to painkillers. And so we had a lot of them coming through our place. And he owned the condo. He was going upside down like I was. And we ended oh. up, I remember one night, he ended up getting something called Suboxone, which it blocks the receptors. And so actually, if you take opioids, it's supposed to make you sick. And we were trying to come off of it together. Oh, okay. And so we're like, all right, dude, we're going to do this. So he got some Suboxone and it blocked his receptors. And he ended up, his intestines, because, you know, it stops the peristalsis in the um, intestines. And so you get like, backed up, right? Yeah. And so his intestines ended up releasing and he had developed all these cysts around his intestines. So he started bleeding out like right oh. there in the living room. And I was like, dude, you have to go to the hospital. He's like, no, I can't go to the hospital. My parents are gonna kill me, uh, there's no way. I was like, so how old are you both at this point? This is 2008, so I was 30. Here I had gone through this incredible journey, like how David changed his life. It, at this point, I mean, it, we had been, the, his story, it was, it was everywhere. I mean, we had been on 2020 and Oprah and everything. And it's like, I was trying to keep it together, but people don't realize. And even though, even when I was on the morning news, I was popping Vicodin just to be myself. Cause you start chasing that. You just, you have to be high just to be yourself because when you're right. not on it, you're in this severe chemical depression. So it was, I was doing that just to get by. And it was just this huge mask of me trying to cover up that my life had completely fallen apart. It was just, I was a shell of a human. So my, my roommate's bleeding out. I finally get him to go to the hospital and I'm just seeing him laying on this gurney, just writhing in pain, also because he's detoxing off of these painkillers. And I'm still high on him right now thinking, I'm done, I'm, I'm done with this. And so I don't recommend this. I should have sought help for this, but I was like, I'm going cold turkey. I came back, he owned the condo. He, was, he hadn't paid rent on it for I can't tell you how long. So he's like, in the hospital, he's like, I don't know what to do. You gotta find a place to live. I'm like, I don't have a place to live. I don't have any money. I'm, I'm out. He was letting me live there rent free. Packed everything in my duffel bag. The next door neighbor saw the whole thing happen. He knew what was going on with us. And he said, hey, why don't you come crash in my- So you're basically it. homeless at this point. I'm, I got no place to go. And so the next door neighbor, nicest guy, his name was Dave. And he's like, hey, why don't you crash in my guest room for a minute? You need to, because he, he knew I was, gonna, I was gonna grind it out. So he let me stay in his guest room for about two weeks while I detoxed. Wow. It was a rough three days coming out of it. And then from there, I was like, Dave, thanks so much. I don't want to be a burden anymore. I, I'm gonna call around and start sleeping on couches. So that's what I did. Started calling close friends, started sleeping on couches around town, kind of figuring out what I was gonna do. I ran out to California. I was staying on my friend's couch in California for a little while. So I was bouncing around from, on couches from, for about three months. I thought I was gonna run away and like, you know, solve my problems. At least I don't have to face the people I owe money to. It was actually in LA when I, when I realized that I, gotta get, I, I got myself into this. That was the big wake up call. 
It was just, it was the fact that I was so busy, especially when I was high on opioids, I was so busy pointing the finger at everyone else. It was my intentions were good. I did it the right way. Everyone else screwed me over. It's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. I was so busy pointing the finger at everybody. And you know, I finally woke up on my friend's couch with a chihuahua licking my face. And I was like, she had like three chihuahuas. I woke up and I was like, it's my fault. Hmm. I got myself here and there's only one person in this world that's gonna get me out of it. Damn, all right, <laughs> let's go. This is such a chance, and I was like, let's go. This is such a big thing because it's like, this victimhood mentality is everywhere now. Mm -hmm. And some of it can be useful to understand like, well, what is going out there in the world that impacts your life? But I've never met anybody who improved themselves by not recognizing that it's within themselves to do it, but that it, and instead is always pointing outside. It's impossible. You cannot. And in fact, that's one of my rules of transformation. If someone comes to me and they want to change their life, they have to take responsibility for all of their actions that got them there. Not for the trauma, but for their reaction to it. And you're right, you cannot change, you cannot transform your life in any sense, by any stretch of the imagination, whether it's physically, whether it's your career, whether it's your relationship, if you don't take responsibility for your role in it, and that's, you can't change victims at all, period. I refuse to even take on someone if they cannot get themselves out of that role because I am no good. I am not a coach to that individual. I'm just another person sitting in the room that they can start telling their story to, looking for some sort of feedback, like, oh, I'm really sorry. Oh, I'm really sorry. That doesn't help anyone change. They have to own it. So David, your friend yes. David comes back into the picture. What, yeah. how, how so? So I leave California on my way out of, out of LA. I stopped at a tattoo parlor, and, and this is, this is my, my realization, I said, I need to make a promise to myself. I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but I, I need something to live for. I have to have like a, that North Star. And so I tattooed the Roman numerals one through a million down my side, and I said, I'm gonna cross them off as I make a positive difference in these people's lives, in that number of people's lives. And so that's what I did. I, Roman numerals one through a million, tattooed down my side, I got in my car, I drove back to Arizona. I was talking to David the whole time, he said, my family said that you can come sleep on our couch and, and get, get yourself back on, on your feet. So just like, and people saw how I helped David, they don't see how David helped me. Like, I helped him through his transformation, he helped me through mine. And I slept on his family's couch for three months while I got back on my feet. And when I did, I could finally afford rent. David moved in with me and we ended up living together for like two years. And it was a wild ride. And we, uh, sure enough, there a documentary, they did a big documentary on that. And then that was when people saw the documentary, it was the recognition of that. That's what ended up landing the whole concept for the show for Extreme Makeover Weight Loss Edition. So it was just one thing after another and it all took off. I'm really grateful, so many blessings. Have, have happened to get me to where, to where I'm at. And I'm just, I'm grateful for all the people who stepped in to help me to where I'm at now. Because I, you know, at times I, I couldn't have done it by myself. You know, so we all, we all need other people. Why is it so hard for, for men to do that? Oh man. Because I, I, I think question. that's true. Yeah. I think we are really loath to accept that we need help. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I, it's, like, it's, why was it's it for a really you? Good question. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. It's <laughs> I still struggle with it. <laughs> you know, and and I've I've asked for help in the past. I mean, I resisted it for so long, then I accepted it, and it changed my life for the better. 
and I still resist it. And it's the funniest thing, it's like, why are we programmed for this? And it's a really good question, and I'm trying to, I'm still trying to find the answer to it. And I don't, you know, I th perhaps, and this is just an assumption, and I can only speak from to my experience with it, I don't ask for help because I don't wanna be a burden on anyone. Who knows where that was programmed? Probably somewhere deep in my, in my childhood. I just, I don't like to feel like a burden. And that's something that wears on me a lot. And so that's why I, I usually just don't like to reach out for help. So you end up hosting the show where you're doing for America, right? What you did right. with David. Yeah. You're showing people how this can happen. You're helping actual people in the show. For how long did the show run for? The show ran for five years. Yeah, um, from 2010 to 2015. And it was amazing. We ended up doing 76 transformations in that time. Now, it's TV, so right. it's weird. Right. So what was the weirdest <laughs> stuff about doing this work in the context of a reality show? Because it's like, you know, we've all watched, I mean, we grew up on reality television right. and Survivor and, so what was real and what was weird? I don't want to say fake, but yeah, what was fake? For sure. Like learning the whole, the production world of things was very different, especially because, so my training approach is usually, I'm more of an educator slash cheerleader when I like to train. And um, <laughs> day one of, of the actual workouts, because you know we went through casting, got to know everyone, really built a rapport with, with everybody. And then day one, when we're in the gym, I go out there and I'll never forget with Krista. Um, season one, we get in there, I'm like, all right, Krista, so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna go ahead and take you on the ground. We're gonna go ahead and lay down. You're gonna start pressing. You're gonna start to feel a burn buildup. That's a lactic acid. And uh, you know, as, as the glycogen is being split into, and I like went <laughs> immediately back into good morning Arizona fitness guy mode from way back when. And, I'll, I, and, and I'm going all of a sudden, I hear this cut, 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 cut. And then, you know, the, the producer is like, hey, Chris, come on. So I, I go, he's like, we want tears. We, uh, you gotta turn it on. None of this, none of this glycogen, you know, <laughs> like, you know, none of this lactic acid stuff. He's you gotta like, make this for the yeah, masses, he's buddy. Like, I want, get accessible. I, yes, I want tires <laughs> flipping, kettlebells swinging, tears screaming in their face. And I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about? So are you like, you're wrecking it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just like, oh, crap. this isn't how this works. Yes, and, and, that's it, and I've already built such an incredible rapport and trust. And I was like, how am I supposed to go out there and just all of a sudden be mean? In hindsight, all I will say, you know, I look back and there are things I wish I had done differently. I also get that there are certain things that you need to do to keep the dream alive for everyone. And that, that, was, that was a really difficult situation for me because I was like, how can I genuinely keep the trust with this individual and not go out there start yelling at them and have them think like, hey, what happened? Oh, oh, I see, this is a game for you. Like, oh, this, I see what it's all about. Yeah, like what happened? And so that, that was a really difficult time for me because I was like, how, how can I possibly do this? Because here's the thing, if I don't, everything goes away for her too, for all of them. And so how can I play the game? How can I then come out there and be the tough, you know, like the, the mean me? And then I realized, okay, I don't have to be mean. I can genuinely care. I can be stern. I can I can lay it on. And the thing is, it took me some time to figure out where that was. So I came out. I do. I came back in that room. I mean, guns blazing. And she was. And the response was what I thought it was going to be. Like, yeah. And and I mean, but she gave it her all. And there were tears. And there was sweat. And there was screaming. And it was just like one after another after another. And then I, there was some reparation to do after that. 
And it was definitely something where I felt like I, I had compromised my own integrity. But then I, I felt like I also needed to explain to them, I was like, if I didn't do this, it's all gonna go away. Like you gotta understand. And then I literally learned the lesson of production with them in that in those moments. And it was like, yeah, that's really okay, we do, because there has to be more. And I also get, like, uh, the, it's gotta be good television. Seven million people don't wanna sit there listening to an, a physiology explanation. They're gonna change the channel. But when, you know, Stacy or Krista or, you know, LaRonda, they start screaming and they start opening up about these things, I was like, oh, there's, there's some power here. And this can be a really good thing. And that was actually the genesis of the name, the fight or flight workout. And then what, what I would do beforehand, in order to just let people know, I'd say, look, you know me as this, I, I would let them know before we go in there, this is what's gonna happen. As opposed to just going in there and blindsiding them. Yeah. Because that's not right. Instead, look, I'm gonna turn it on. I'm gonna push you to a place you've never been before. And here's the thing, and this, this is, there's truth to this. When you break someone down physically and they don't have the physical power to defend themselves anymore, emotionally they don't have the, the power to keep protecting what it is that they're holding in, and really deep things can come out that they've been holding onto for a long time that need to come out. And so it turned into a really beautiful thing that was born out of something that was that where I compromised my own integrity and I, I felt very regretful for, but then it turned into something that actually helped set a lot of people free. And they also started to realize, oh my God, if I could do that, what else could I do? I mean, I took them to hell and back in an hour. And I mean, it was brutal. But again, they unloaded some really heavy stuff. Even a lot of times they finished the whole thing in tears. They're like, I haven't said anything about that for 25 years. And I'm like, whoa. And he, all of us are just like, yeah. whoa. And then he was, I would always finish with a thank you. You are so amazing. And now, now we can start the healing process. And it turned into a beautiful thing. But it was born out of something that wasn't. I mean, it's television, right? right and right. so it's, it's a construction job in a certain sense. Like sure. we have to get these parts so we can build the thing that's going to be good. Right. And it's funny because now, now you could do you could do a YouTube channel with the kinesiology. They exist, right. and they probably get more views than the show. <laughs> it could be long form. I could talk for three hours and people would actually watch. It's crazy. I want to bring up something that's kind of controversial. Yeah. And that is this notion of body positivity mm. and you know, a couple years ago, there were these Cosmopolitan magazine covers with, you know, obese people on the cover. Sure. With this like, tagline that said, this is healthy. Right. And there was backlash to it, and it was obviously trying to be provocative, and I don't think I even necessarily fully understand whatever the motivation was, but this is, this is like a thing now. A, a, this sense of like, no, you can be effectively morbidly obese. Right. And, and, and not see yourself as in need of transformation. Are you willing to talk about that? Like, how do you think about this cultural meme that's happening? Right. Because this is not healthy. Like, technically, it's right. not healthy. So, <laughs> yours, yours. <laughs> um, <laughs> <woman> here? <laughs> no. Um, I mean, as, as, a, yes. as a dad, no, our a, kids face all these messages, especially on Instagram and TikTok. Oh, totally, totally. And this is now part of the messaging. Fair. Yep. And you, totally you know, and you have spent your life helping people like David. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like it's helping David to be like, no, you're healthy, you're fine. No. I and I, I agree with you there. Here's my stance on it. I I've done a lot of reflecting of who am I 
to to the individuals out there, period. Then I'm gonna take that one step further and be like, who am I to the individuals out there that actually want to change? Here's the thing. If you are 400 pounds and you are happy, you win. And by the way, I, I am here to, to cheer you on. It's not my job to help people lose weight. It's my job to help people find a purpose and achieve their goals. That's it. And so if your goal is not to lose weight, then I'm your friend. But if you are seeking change because right now, because you're suffering in some sort, in some form or fashion, whatever that might be, I can help you. And that's, that's what I'm here to do. But here's the thing, the one thing I do ask is that I do ask any, any individual who might ever be interested in, in hearing me out, to say, please be honest with yourself. And, and also, if you're gonna say that, if, you know, if say you are 100 pounds overweight and you're saying this is healthy, check your biomarkers. Maybe it is. And if it is, good on you. And if you feel good about yourself, if you're genuinely, truly confident, great. But if you wanna change, you can. And, if, and if, it's, if the desire is there and it's a priority for you, I'm here. It's simple as that. It's, a fi it's fair. Yeah. It's a good, <laughs> it's yeah. a good answer. It's, it's, and, I, <laughs> and I know it's a safe answer, but it's also real. It is real. a safe answer. It's real. And I do see that and I just think, okay, I, I get what they're saying. Because I also, it is important that we don't place, so it, it's like, Oh, you're 100 pounds overweight. Something's wrong with you. You have to change. You're unhealthy. It's all about you. It's, it's you. Maybe you're, believe it or not, maybe you're not. Your buddy's into CrossFit, CEO of CrossFit. Have you seen some of those, some of those CrossFit athletes? I mean, you throw them on a BMI, obviously they're overweight to almost obese. Some of them are really thick. I mean, they, they got a decent amount of body fat on, but I mean, they're, they're also the greatest athletes in the world. You can have 20% body fat and be a phenomenal athlete and be insanely healthy. Now, <laughs> You're saying 20%, I'm like, man, it'd be nice to be 20%. <laughs> <right?"> <laughs> maybe, maybe 25, I don't know. But, but I, I, I do know, I mean, the, the data, the research would suggest though, as your body fat goes up, there are significant hormonal changes that your body goes through and also your risks for diabetes, heart attack, stroke, cancer, all of those are linked to obesity, to the amount of body fat that, that we carry. And so you understand that the risk factors go up. If you want to tell me that you're healthy and you're happy, so who, who am I to tell you what, what you can or can't do with you? It's your body. Okay, great. Yeah. I, I am here for anyone who wants to change. Speaking to that, I, I do believe that anyone who has a platform, I mean, especially a large editorial like that, and if you make a general like a general sweeping claim like this is healthy it comes with a lot of responsibility and that could do far more damage than good and again yeah. who knows what that what that is show us what, I, I you know, i want you to take those those models and show us their biomarkers let me see what, what their a1c is let me see what their blood sugar is let, let, let's see what their cholesterol is let, let's see all these different things Let's also, why don't we do a personality inventory and, and a mental well-being inventory and say like, how do you genuinely feel about yourself? Like, we don't know these things because there's gonna be those physical biomarkers, but then there's also like, what is happening on the inside with their, with their esteem and their confidence and everything? Like, are they really where they wanna be? So the thing is like, I think it's dangerous to make those general sweeping statements if you just don't know, because the thing is you see something, but you're making a claim of what's happening on the inside. And are they healthy? Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't, I don't know. But it's dangerous when you have, especially a lot of younger 
eyes looking at that oh, yeah. saying, that's okay. It's audience call. That's okay. The lifestyle that I'm on, you know, even though I might be smashing 3,000 extra calories a day coming from fast food and everything, oh, it's okay. Because that they, they said it's healthy. So it's all right to let myself go in this direction. And that could lead to all kinds of pain and struggling. We don't know. But the research would suggest that if you continue to add body fat to your body, it's going to increase your risk of diabetes, heart disease, stroke, cancer, et cetera. And of course, all the psychological issues as well. I think it's one of these things where people are coming from this, I think, good place, which is there is this psychological, they're kind of starting at the psychology. They are. And oh, well, yeah. you have to have a positive body image. You have to have a positive view for, of yourself in order to make progress. And I think these things can't be disentangled. You can't have the positive vision, the affirmation without the responsibility, right. because that's why you need the affirmation so you can sort of power the responsibility. If you're just yeah. like, oh no, you can just have that for free. That's sort of like the cheap sugar candy version of harm reduction, right. if you will. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think that applies in a lot of domains. It applies to folks who are suffering with drug addiction and homelessness. Like, oh, let's right. do harm reduction. Let's just give them clean needles. Right, right. And it's like, that's, I'm just gonna yeah. say it. You don't have to agree, but it's the lazy way out. <laughs> It's, not, it's, not for the person. If I want to help you, right. it's lazy to say, I'll just give you a clean needle and now I've helped you. I've reduced your harm. Right. Yeah. No, it's missing the action component. Like, it's, it's, here, here's a quick fix. Here's a Band-Aid on it. Oh, but yeah, don't, don't bother adopting true lifestyle changes that are going to improve your quality of life. Oh, they're hard, right. so forget it. Right. No. No, it, it's, you're right. It's a two-pronged approach. But you, again, here we are again. You must have the mental and the physical. And you, you have to put your body into action if you want to make changes. Like, it just has to happen. You met your wife on the show? I met my wife, actually, a couple months after I moved out of my car at a self-improvement <laughs> self seminar. Yes. And then... Because you ended up co-hosts. Yes. So how did. did this happen? So I met my wife at Nickelodeon, so I can relate oh, right, to, right. you know, <laughs> so... having a work, a work <laughs> relationship dynamic, which is... Uh plays out for everyone else around you. The, the way that we met, you know, we were both trying to improve our lives and, and just trying to figure ourselves out. That was my first real dive into the psychology of it all because I was trying to figure myself out after dealing with, you know, how could I have possibly fallen into this rut of, oh my God, I'm a drug addict. I'm an opioid addict and I was taking responsibility for it. I'm like, how did that happen? I thought I was invincible, you know, like as we, most of us do in our 20s sometimes. Yeah. And I was like, okay, there's a lot more to me than I need to figure out. And then I ended up meeting her at the self-improvement seminar and she went, and I went through this amazing journey where the whole, you know, the concept, the inception of the show, that's when I engaged with the production company in Los Angeles, ended up selling the show. And I was the host of the show for the first three seasons, four seasons, but she was always there helping out, like we, we would actually create like an Arizona house. So anyone who was struggling would go to Arizona. And so she made cameos in the episodes here and there. Yeah. And um, I mean, she was always there on set or she was back home because you know, we had two, then three, then four kids in the process. And so we had a growing family. And then in season five, that's when she was like the co-host with me. For the most part, it was, it was really enjoyable sharing the experience with my wife, my then wife at the time. So my wife and I met at Nickelodeon, and like I said, in 2001, and we, you know, we got married a couple of years later, and then several years ago, we made a documentary together called Out the Fork, where we traveled around the country together. Oh, that's cool. Me as a meat eater and her as a vegetarian, looking at the way 
animals are raised for food and think and asking questions about what is your comfort level morally with seeing these different systems and how sure. they work. In a very real sense, I was the director, but it was her passion project, mm -hmm. which I think was actually a good dynamic, but it was maybe one of the hardest things for our relationship ever because we would go to like a large scale feedlot. Yeah. And I've got like 40 things, like you know, that I'm trying to accomplish Technically, yeah. I've got to ask these questions. I've got to listen. I got to think about okay, we've got to get to this next location. What for magic hour? All that kind of stuff. Right. So I could kind <laughs> of sort of compartmentalize the experience of it. Right. And then we'd get home to the hotel room after because she's having this horrible visceral experience and she's seeing these cows on this hot dirt and she's like, "This is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life." Right. And then we get home. She's like, "You're like a heartless son of a." <laughs> How are you not wanting to die right now after what we've been through today? And I'm like, uh, we have to wake up at 5 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> well, fortunately, we were both on the front end of the camera. Yeah. There were some exhausting days. I'm not going to lie. It was it was exhausting. And it's like, because we're trying to solve problems. We're genuinely trying to tr help these people transform, which is a, that's an incredibly energy demanding you know, experience to go through that, to give so much to these people who are you're trying to take through this process. But I mean, at, at, at the end of it all, like, looking back, you just think, what an adventure. You know, and I'm, I, I'm sure you probably think the same. Oh, yeah, like, think of all the places you went and the stories you can tell and the crazy wacky things that you can did. And it's like, it's all, I mean, you're checking stuff off the bucket list and with someone that you really enjoy spending life with. But I do know because of Google reveals that really? you guys, did, your marriage didn't survive. No. And that this happened in public view. So how did you navigate this? You have kids, right. you have a public thing taking place, which is really weird. Right. What, how do you do that and do something that's already hard, which is keep your kids in mind when you've got that stuff going on. Right. How did you deal with that? How did that work? So actually, really things started to fall apart after our time on the show, it was almost as if the show and us being so busy on it was like a beautiful distraction from what wasn't working between us. And so it kept us so busy working toward a shared mission yeah. that when we didn't have that mission anymore, it put a huge spotlight on our differences and how we had grown apart over those five years. And ultimately at the end of the day, there was and I, I wish it wasn't this way, but there was a great deal of respect that was lost for each other in the process, the way we started treating each other. And that, I mean, respect and friendship and like, that's a foundation. I mean, those are some foundational components of a relationship. And when you don't respect each other, and yeah. I'm, I'm not point, I'm only, I'm taking responsibility for my part of this. Some of the things I did and I said in front of other people, in front of the kids, I'm ashamed of it. From the, the time the show ended for the next few years, it just got worse and worse and worse. And she was going her direction on the, where she wanted to go in life. And I was going my direction on where I wanted to go in life. And at the same time, we got these four incredible children. And so I was doing a lot of reflecting. And, and I saw over the course of five years, seven different therapists, counselors, and eventually a psychologist. Because it got to a point where I was just so bitter and so angry. The, the, there was a part of me that ended up coming out that I didn't even know existed. And it was just, it was angry and it was, it was shameful. And, and, and I realized like, 
I need to figure that out because I was not showing up as the best me, especially for the kids. Because the affection and respect and everything that I had between myself and my wife, that was gone. She didn't have it for me, I didn't have it for her. So I was more focused on the kids. And maybe, maybe that's where things really started to go wrong. But that's also where we brought, at first it was a marriage and family counselor. Then for me, I started to go into such a dark place, like a depression, and anxiety started to emerge. And I'm not sure where it came from, but it started to really take a hold of me. And so before I know it, it went from a marriage and family counselor, a couple of them, to a mental health counselor, to then, you know, licensed psychologist, to then a licensed psychiatrist. And before I know it, I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And then they put me on Lexapro. And Lexapro didn't work, tried a few more things, then started Wellbutrin. And at, at that point, and I, I think it's really important. This is my second journey. Like you know, like right. So I, you've already gone through a, uh, this this prior experience with opioids and with you know your life collapsing. This must have been actually triggering for you to be going through this again and to be dealing with medications to try to get yourself into a place. Hundred percent. I know exactly where the anxiety came from. The anxiety came from the fact that my marriage is falling apart. I have these children. I'm willing to do what it takes to try to make it work even though I'm miserable, she's miserable. We keep seeing these counselors to try to make it work and it's not working. How could I possibly take this apart and still find peace with everyone? And the anxiety just started coming up more and more and more to a point where I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And I would ruminate you know, and catastrophize about how, how this is gonna affect the kids. And, and all of this happening in the public eye and how could I do this to them? And how could, you know, how could everything fall apart? And so it was, for me, I mean, 2015 to 2018 was, that was my, that was, you know, the second journey into the canyon. And I, now I'm, you know, I'm climbing the second mountain right now. But the hardest part is that everyone knew us as, we were Chris and Heidi. It's Chris and Heidi, Chris and Heidi, Chris and Heidi. The yeah, whole you, brand you, you was become built. one. You become one entity. And not just, exactly, the brand is one, but everything else built underneath it is one. And I was thinking, this is going to take years to fall apart because we're what people see in the public, and for me, it, for, after a while, like there were moments of hope. After you see a counselor, you're like, that's it. We're going to make this work. Here we go. I love you so much, and we can do this, and things are going to change. Things didn't change. And then we, here we go again. Okay, this is gonna happen. And like there are moments of hope where we, I literally thought it was gonna happen and I realized she's not willing to change. And you know what? I'm not either. Okay, if that's gonna be our reality, how can we find peace and how can I show up as the best me for my kids? One of the things that one, a friend of the show, uh, Warren Farrell, has taught me and, and, and we've talked about and we've had him on the show is there's things that if you are gonna end up divorced that you need to do for the betterment of the kids. You know, stay in close proximity. Don't badmouth each other. Right. Don't, do, there's things that like kind of everyone's inclined to do. Right. The worst angels of their nature, but it's terrible for the kids. But if you can do these things, the kids can be all right. Yes. They can yes. have a loving relationship. You can co-parent. You're sort of stuck to it. You're stuck together. Right. So right. how have you managed that? Fortunately, really well. And by the way, that was one of the biggest things. Like once I said, I, I can't do this. It's really important that we divorce. The therapist, that was the, the advice they said, do not badmouth the other parent. They kind of kind of helped us through the process. And by the way, I cannot stress how important it is that you do not badmouth the other parent because it, it, it's not that it will make that parent look bad, it will make you look bad. 
And eventually those, the kids will, if they're really young, they'll realize it when they're older. And like, they know better, they'll figure it out. And so the thing is, you always treat the other parent with the utmost respect because that's their parent. Yeah. And so it's really important that you still show them whatever love and respect you can. And sometimes if that means just keeping as much distance as possible, and then you guys connect when you need to connect to hand the kids off or to talk through whatever you need to, just do it as respectfully as possible. But that's, I must say that's been really, really important. And as you go through the transition, it's really hard at first, but it gets easier for anyone who might be going through it now. I mean, right as you're going through the divorce into like the first usually few months afterward, depending on the situation, it is it can be really difficult. But then it just gets easier and easier and easier. And now we have a wonderful relationship. I have the most incredible relationship with Heidi. We get along great. And the thing is, she's got her life. She's got her boyfriend. I get along with him great. I've actually been rooting for him for a long time. And so I'm like, because <laughs> he's a good dude. And I was like, all right, let's go. So it's like, everything's, it's good. It's good. I'm at peace. She's at peace. The, and the kids, I, my relationship with my children is better than it ever was before because for three, four years, all they saw was fighting. We didn't spend time with them. We were never present with them because we were so busy fighting each other. And I know, I know a lot of people have their own opinions about marriage and divorce and everything, but I can, in, in hindsight, I can look back and say, this was the right thing for us and it's worked out well and the kids are, they're great. Did you encounter any trouble with the court stuff or the... Custody, these are things, it sounds like you've, you've managed to navigate some waters that can get really rough for people. Thank goodness. We were both very, she had been divorced before, so she knew how bad it could possibly be. We ended up negotiating the divorce ourselves before we even, because the moment you start to you lawyer up and bring lawyers in, it can get really nasty really fast. Yeah, they, they take an aggressive posture <laughs> and they encourage it, is they what do. I've been told. They do. It's like and they kind of get in there and make it worse. Yes, it's so true. But no, we, we were able to negotiate that really well. It was the most peaceful separation, and uh, thank goodness, everything's everything's. It's gone really well. Before we wrap things up, is there a single piece of advice that you would offer to someone in your position who's at that point where they have realized, my marriage is not gonna get better. We aren't gonna come back together here. Right. Like, is there a piece of advice for, here's like the thing to hold your mantra right. as, you, as you navigate the next steps, especially if they have kids. Right. This is my single piece of advice. Always take the high road. I was surrounded by incredible people who told me that over and over and over again when I didn't want to. Always take the high road. I can't stress that enough. That would be my single piece of advice. It's good advice. It's good advice for life. It saved me from doing some things that I would regret in the long run. Okay, that's 2019. Yes. Along comes a pandemic. And it brings us up to today. Yes. So you've got exciting things happening. What is this movement that you have built in the aftermath of the pandemic? Yeah. So in my search for happiness, you know, after after the divorce and really trying to trying to find myself, I realized that there's no happiness in financial gain or anything. And I found pulling myself out of the darkness. I found my happiness in, in service, in helping people, and. Um, it's always been there for you it's too. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And it was, it was easy. It was, it got so clouded so fast when I was stuck in my own world and my own misery and just my own darkness and, and just trying to get out of it all. And um, it is in service. And and it, one hundred percent. It, 
I found my passion for helping people again. And so in, during the pandemic, obviously everyone was isolated and we were seeing the, the numbers and the statistics of mental health and all of our children, they're, they're sedentary at home and the numbers, the abuse, suicide, everything's skyrocketing. I mean, so many people struggling and I was thinking, what could I possibly do? Like, what do I have available to me now? I do have a platform, thank goodness. I was blessed with an awesome platform. I've got a team of incredible developers because I've been living in the app space for quite some time and I have knowledge and a passion for exercise and for movement and also for mindfulness now because I've gone through this incredible mental journey and I realize yeah. it's all intertwined. So what could I do for everyone who's suffering right now? And I ended up developing a program called Move One Million. And it's, it's simple. It's, two and a half minutes of movement. It's a top-down warm-up, total body warm-up, and it takes, again, two and a half minutes, followed by two minutes of mindfulness, of just bringing you here and now, and then it's finished with positive affirmations. You're strong, you can do anything you set your mind to, and you're loved, and we believe in you. And sure enough, so I, I, I took this, and the inspiration was actually something that happened a long time ago. It was inspired by something called Raji Taiso hmm. that um, the Emperor Hirohito of Japan implemented in 1928 in Japan to bring his country together and to make them healthier. And like, this is 1928. He took radio from, from the United States. Every morning at 6.30 in the morning, they would play it in every school, every corporation, every factory would stand up, and they would go through the same movements, a top-down warm-up, total body warm-up hmm. for three and a half minutes played to the same music every day. Today, 94 years later, 27 million people still do Raggio Taiso. But what he did between 1928 and 1955, he made Japan, who the average life expectancy then was 41 years old, he expanded the life expectancy to they became the healthiest country in the world. In one generation, he brought his country together and bonded them. You know, go to, back to the pandemic and think, there are riots in the streets, more division than ever. Yeah. Everyone's sedentary in their homes, mental health is suffering. We needed to come together and we needed to move and we need to be mindful. And so this was everything in one. So I, I created this uh, virtual platform free for everybody where you could simply log on and we would create a new broadcast every day. And it looks like the Brady Bunch where like I'm in the middle and I open up the whole thing and then we all move for two and a half minutes. It's the same movements, same 13 movements for two and a half minutes done every to the same music. And what I'm trying to do is I'm, I want to instill it in us because the thing is music and movement, they go together. When I say the Macarena, you know how to do the dance, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, I do. Yes, everybody, and here's the thing. Yes, sadly. When, when you do, <laughs> and, when you, and here's the best part. The gift that Emperor Hirohito was able to give to his people of Japan, he changed his country with three and a half minutes of movement. Changed his country. And now, anytime that they hear the music, they know how to take the first step to transform their body forever. What a beautiful thing, because it's the music that brings it all back. So for forever, I wanted to give a gift to everybody, but especially these children. When they hear this music, they're gonna know the music starts, oh, it's a head roll. And then I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna raise my arms out to a Y and into an X, and, I'm gonna, and they'll know this first step forever. I've spent my life helping people that don't know how to take the first step. And I was thinking, what can I do? I can give everyone the gift of the first step of transformation. And I want to give it out for free. And it took off. And so now it's in all school districts across Arizona. It's in um, Oakwood Creative Care for, uh, for dementia and Alzheimer's. It's in the Foundation for Senior Living. It's in 71 countries around the world now. Wow. And it's just, it's taken off. And we have ambassadors in Belgium and France and South Africa. And there's a school in Kazakhstan that does this every day. And it's so cool because in the broadcast, people send in their videos and we have people around the world moving around 
around me and we share it every day so you can move with other people. So it satisfies the social health aspect of it. And then there's the mental health with the mindfulness afterward and the two and a half minutes of movement is just a beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm excited because I actually just yesterday had an incredible meeting with a huge partnership that has over 1.4 million certified trainers that they want to actually give this to to help take this out to the world wow. and really, really grow this thing. So it's going to be an exciting few years ahead. Well, it's such a great synthesis of our conversation, right? Because it's, it is. It's bringing all these things together and in the service of helping people transform their lives. That's it. So I ask this of every guest, how do you think of your role in the American story? You know, we're called Dad Saves America because I believe America has something special about it. It's, it's, right. it's principles, what it can be, even if it doesn't always live up to it. And I think we all have a role to play. What's yours? I think my role would be to help give people hope. Again, I've been blessed with a platform to be able to do that so I can show people how extraordinary they are. I can showcase you know, amazing, extraordinary feats that we can do for millions of people so that they can realize the extraordinary within them. And I love doing that. And so I just want to give people hope for a better quality of life, for a better America. Thanks for being on Dad Saves America, Chris. This has been a real pleasure and a real journey together. Thank you, John. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica. <laughs>